Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, of thy Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, on this first Sunday of Reformation Month. Can we say thanks be to God? Thanks be to God. Now it is 502 years since the marked beginning of the great Protestant Reformation. During this month, as been our tradition now for the past 10 years, we're going to focus on the Reformers uh, and the Psalms. Uh, We haven't done that for 10 years, but that's what we're going to do today. We focused on the Reformers. These stalwart heroes of our faith looked to God for their strength as they stood against the powers of darkness. Weak men as they were in the flesh, they became mighty in the spirit, and they went to war with everything that exalted itself above the name of Christ. That's what we are. We are warriors, and that's what we're doing. Amen? Anything that tries to exalt itself above our Lord and above the thoughts of the Word of God, we are at war with, even our very own thoughts. We want to keep them captive. The psalmist knew the source of this kind of strength as he led Israel in a song when he led them to the rock that is our God in Psalm 46. He said this, he said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling. Because there is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. Do you, know, do you know what this is? This is you. Do you know that you are the holy mountain of God? You are where the rivers of life are flowing from. You might not understand this, but God has made the church the holy mountain of God, where the rivers of life flow out of and the, the trees of righteousness that are given for the healing of the nations. Do you understand that's who you are? He said, God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. God shall help her, and right early he shall. The heathen raged, and the kingdoms were moved. But you know what God did? He uttered his voice, and they melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come and behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he has made 
in the earth. Not us. It's not up to us to go out and form an army and level the, you know, level the earth flat with our power. But it's what God is doing. Amen? He maketh wars to cease Under the ends of the earth, he breaks the bows, he cuts the spear in sunder, he burns the chariot with fire. Be still, he said, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen, and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of the hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Lord, it's an amazing thing that we have been saved from our sins, that we have been called out of darkness and brought into your marvelous light. And it is also an amazing and wonderful thing that not only have you done that, but Lord, you have made us the bearers of that light. You have made us the bearers of that salvation. Lord, you have taken an army that was nothing but bones and raised us up, putting flesh and sinew upon the bones, and you have made these bones live. And today, oh God, we live and we march and we walk and we are reminded that we are indeed the church triumphant and the church militant. And we are an army of God. We are the soldiers of the Lord. Today, give us marching orders. Today, speak to us. Give us provisions for the long battle, Lord. Feed us and change us. Train us so that our hands may be swift in fight against our enemies. In Christ's name we pray. And God's people said... Today's a little bit different than normal. My text is actually from the call to worship. Uh, I wanted to doubly emphasize it. Wasn't that an incredible psalm, Psalm 46? You can almost hear in it uh, the comforts uh, and the assurances that we need to hear in this day and age that we're living. I'm going to read a few verses from it and we'll come back to it. But my subject today is... uh, the Psalms and Reformation, and in particular, we're going to talk about Luther. And I've shared some of these things with you before, but there'll be a little bit of difference in, in it this time. We've been going through the Psalms all year long, right? And as we've been going through them, this will kind of give you some encouragement. Folks, we need Reformation. We really do. And we can rail against what isn't happening, or we could revel in what we are just doing, and we should just do it. We should worship God. We should sing the Psalms. We should learn the Word of God. We don't have to focus on what's not happening. Let's just let it happen here. And we may think that what we uh, have to offer the world is so insignificant that it won't matter. But if you do that, you're going to miss every great story, the point of most every great story in the Bible. Every, most every great story in the Bible accentuates the truth that God uses a few people. He uses a few dedicated people, people who love his word, to change the entire world. That's what he does all the time. Why does he do it? The Bible says he does it so that no flesh can glory in his presence. Wouldn't it be great if your miserable flesh got to be the reason and the glory for God in the world? He gets the glory because what we could never do, he will do through you and me. Isn't that amazing? I'm telling you, you will live to see this little tiny congregation change the world. It's already doing it. 
It's already doing it. You don't, you don't see it maybe. You don't know it. But things are happening in the kingdom of God through this little band of nobodies who don't, you know, we're weak. Perfect, God says. Perfect opportunity. Psalm 63. Psalm, I'm sorry, 46. Verses 1 through 3 and 10 and 11. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. What are we not going to do? We're not going to fear people. And we're not going to fear what's happening in the world. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the sea. That's some pretty bold stuff. We're not going to be afraid. Pick up the mountain, throw them in the ocean if you want to. That doesn't scare me. Though the waters there have roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake, I'm not scared. Why? Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Everybody say, the Lord of hosts is with me. The Lord of hosts is with this church. And the God of Jacob is our refuge. You may be seated. The church of Jesus Christ was planted in the ground as a seed at Golgotha. Another picture of weakness. Something small and insignificant. A little tiny thing that if left in a jar on the side table somewhere would do nothing. But because it was taken out and put in the ground, the seed at Golgotha in this outpost in the Roman Empire at the height of its glory would outlive it. Amen? It would be like the seed of grass that comes up through the concrete and busts it open by the power that God has put inside of it. That seed was Jesus himself, and he sprang forth with life on the third day after he was killed and put in the rich man's tomb. The rich man's tomb was like the dirt that, uh, that this seed was planted into, and he rose from the earth, a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground, as it says in Isaiah chapter 53. With seemingly no form or comeliness, no beauty in these difficult early days of persecution, Christ flowered before the earth and began to fill it through his people, the church. A man who had no children to declare his own generation would become the father of an entire race of people, the people of God. And his life that was lost, not ever having fathered a child, he was like the barren one in Isaiah 54. Break forth and cry, thou barren one that bearest not, for many more are the children of the desolate than she which hath an husband. Christ who had no children would give birth, as Abraham did, to a, a, a vast uh, generation of people, the people of God whose numbers could not be numbered by the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. That's what God does. He takes from us our fatherhood, it seems, but then makes us the father of so many. Lowly, despised, and rejected as these people were, like their master, they were now called Christians. They outgrew and they outlived the empire into which they were born. Once hated as their master had been, they ascended to the trellis of power and they spread down the Roman roads like lush ivy everywhere they led. These trees of life were the healing of the nations wherever they went. That's what the church does. 
Wherever we go, people of God, we bring healing to other people. You may think that the wisdom that you hear from this pulpit that you see in the word of God is just maybe proverbial uh, good ideas and principles to live by, but it is not. It is the power of almighty God. His word that was spoken that said, let there be light. What happened when those words were spoken? Light blazed in the dark heavens. And when he said, let the earth bring forth, what did it do? It brought forth No less powerful were the words of creation than the words of God. And when we speak them, people of God, do you know what happens in a world that's dead? It begins to live. The devil wants you to shut your mouth. He doesn't want you to speak his word because he knows when we go out in the world and we speak it, that life springs up everywhere we go. Eventually, Rome would be synonymous with Christianity and less tied to the dying empire that fertilized its spread through the world. Isn't that amazing? When you say Rome today, what, what do most people go? Well, okay, they mean the Roman Catholic Church or they mean the church. And in, the, and in these times, it was. It was the church, the time of the Reformation. If you said Rome, Rome meant Christianity. It didn't mean empire. It meant Christianity itself. However, as powerful As the church began and as as power began to rise within it and as it began to make uh, trample over the kingdoms of the world, ungodly men sought a place within the walls of this mighty vineyard. Within these walls of this great garden all new was really the power of the whole world. And so they weeded their way inside so they could have a piece of the action. Through the Roman Empire, the prophecy of Revelation 11 was fulfilled The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of his Christ. But with this power, there also came corruption. And with this corruption came God's judgment. Where does judgment begin, folks? You know, my friend John said something to me the other day that was pretty incredible and pretty powerful. Someone, when I told him, they're like, someone should write that down and put that at a, someone should write that down. He was telling me how horrible it is out in California and they make every grade school kid put the number, the number of Planned Parenthood is printed on every grade school kid's student ID from the time they join grade school. Is that insane? Isn't that disgusting? Remember when some of you, uh, Andy, you might remember when we were kids, if a, if a girl wanted an abortion, she could go and get one and the school wouldn't even have to tell mom and dad. You remember that way back when? Well, nowadays they do it with sex change operations. It's become a right for a child and they can do it privately without their parents' knowledge in California. That's disgusting, right? I'm talking to him about it and, and I'm like, and, and, and we got to talking about politics briefly. And he said, you know, Mark, it wasn't the Democrats that did this. And I said, I said, well, okay, what do you mean? He said, the Democrats didn't cancel Sunday night church in America. He said, Hillary Clinton did not end Wednesday night Bible study. And I was like, he goes, the church surrendered long before the Democrats came. Judgment begins at the house of God. And in the days of reformation, it was so God has always been faithful to correct those he loves and to bring them to repentance before him. We need to know that judgment is coming to America. Now, when people say that, it sounds like they're talking about the fires that come before the five minutes, you know, before we're swept out, before, uh, you know, the, the, the rapture. And some people don't even like to talk about it. But judgment's coming to America. 
the church of Jesus Christ in America, and that may not be going on right here, but as, as a whole has abandoned Christ completely and has taken up good principles or their ideas of things. They don't preach the word of God. Judgment's coming. We're in a very similar place to this time that we're talking about right here. God loves us and he will bring us to repentance. And it will be the same today. He's always done this. What he did in the 6th century when this was going on, when the church became corrupt and filled with these ungodly men, God sent the minions of darkness on an errand to raise up a false prophet named Muhammad. He in turn would raise up a scourge of judgment against the wayward church. On the eastern banks of the Arabian Peninsula, the wealthiest woman of an Ishmaelite kingdom, she was a 40-year-old princess of sorts on her third marriage, married the 25-year-old Muhammad. And uh, through their marriage and what happened in their life, the power and wealth that she had launched this new religion that we today call Islam. As this small band grew into a nation itself, God used these descendants of Abraham uh, and Hagar's child of the flesh as he had used the Philistines and the Hittites, the Amorites, the uh, Babylonians and Assyrians. He used them to reprove the wayward Israelites then. And now he used Islam to scourge the church in the 6th century. Does it sound familiar? Who has come to attack America and take down her buildings and blow up bombs and, and go into the church that's flourishing in Africa and go into Africa raping and stealing and horrifying things to the Christian people there while we're over here going, wow, that's well, but that's over there. Folks, Islam uh, has decimated the Christians of the Middle East and burned them and raped them and pillaged them. And thank God our nation did rise up and, and put out ISIS. But there, that's not all there is. There's plenty more where that came from. You can't stop what God has sent to judge you. Not with bombs, but thank God we did blow them up. But there'll be more coming if we don't repent. Battling these bloodthirsty Turks that united against the church, which had fallen into disarray and in, 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 in its own prosperity. This is what happens. It's what's happening in America. We're so blessed. We have so much. Our lives are so easy. We're so free that what do we do? We start thinking about ourselves and we'd like to have more and we'd like to be more comfortable and we'd like to be happier. And we'd like to have more money and more time and more of everything. That's what we do because we are no different than the sinners that went into the promised land and forgot God. We are living in the promised land right now, and America is forgetting God. The unity uh, and the consolidation of the government and the ecclesiastical power led to further abuses. Rather than having churches be governed autonomously by their leaders, they're beginning a top-down approach from Rome that started to dictate and started to, to remove the power that God had put at the local level in one place. And so he could replace, the devil could get in there and replace one guy and affect the entire church. This led to further abuses as the world's wealthiest men fought for a place at the table of Christ, not for its holy food, but for its vast wealth and power. There's vast wealth and power in the church today. And the devil has sent his people in here to do it again. The church had become superstitious and controlling. The written word of God was slowly taken from the hands of the common man and only learned scholars of the church could even read its words from the holy pages. Because of this, the church could deceive its people and fleece them like the evil shepherds of Israel did before God brought judgment upon them through the Babylonians. Like God always is, 
and was the God who hears the cry of his people. And that's what we are for today, guys. We're going to cry out and we're going to say, we don't want to live in the land of the free and the brave and kill our babies. We don't want to live in the land of the free and the brave and, 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 and encourage children to decide whether they're men or women or redefine marriage to be between anybody and anybody and anything and anything. That's not what we want to do. God, uh, the Jews cried out for deliverance, and folks, we've got to play that role today. They prayed for the, God's return to come back, to hear their prayers, and that's what was happening at the time, of, of course, at the Great Reformation. Today we call the men uh, of this time period that went on, this corruption went on for a very long time, and, and the people began praying and crying out, and those deliverers that God sent we called the proto-reformers and we call the reformers. Through the, through the history of the church, God was judging it, but at the same time, he was answering his prayers. God was sending them their Moses to deliver them out of the slavery that God had imposed upon them to begin with. John Wycliffe, and I know this is a very quick condensing of this historical period because we're already at the 13th century but John Wycliffe is what was known as the morning star of the Protestant Reformation which we're celebrating this month he began translating the Bible out of a language that the common people couldn't read and he began putting it into English and they didn't like it right we've heard about him plenty right he said, if it, if it has to do with me, he said, the man out there plowing the field who's nobody, who doesn't get paid, who's not important, who's, who's stuck in a class that he can never get out, that man plowing will know more than the king will know. He'll know more than any priest and any pulpit. In the, he goes, because I'm going to hand the word of God. That's what, that's what a reformer does. He sees something that needs to be done instead of going, well, no one will listen. No one, I probably can't do it. He gets out the Bible and he starts going, how can I get it in this language? And he figures it out. That's what makes him a great man of God. God used him to do a work that's so hard that no one believed it could be done, but he did it folks. And as a result, you can read the Bible in your language. Wouldn't you say that's a pretty significant contribution? Uh, and that's what we're doing. We're getting ready to go to Myanmar to give people a Bible in a language they can read. Can you imagine that your church is doing that? I can't imagine it. I think it's crazy. I don't know the language myself. I didn't even know they were working on it. And we're going to produce a New Testament in a language where there's never been one. Waha. I mean, I can't take any credit for it other than that God decided to put me smack in the middle of it. That's what God does. I'm not a linguistics expert or a, a translation expert or a Hebrew Greek expert. I'm not anything. God doesn't need us to be great. But he will use us if we say, here I am, Lord, send me. Today, anyway, we call these men the, the, uh, the, the proto-reformers. They, they were Augustinian monks uh, in France. And there were Augustinian monks in Germany and Switzerland. They began to pray for and preach for the return of the word of God. And they called to repentance of a church that had strayed so far from its holy calling. During these tumultuous few hundred years, the Pope called on saints to take back Jerusalem and the Holy Land from the Muslims and had been overrun and ruled by the Muslims. And they did. They went and they did this. But did that change the world? No. Because they went and yeah, they killed a few Muslims. And yeah, they went and they retook over some concrete and some buildings. And, and I'm glad they did it. But did that change the world? 
No, it just went back. But it was the guys who were in there uh, by candlelight at night scribbling. Guys who took time to get education and to find out the keys to getting the word of God from Greek and Hebrew. And learning the hard work of English grammar. That, those guys are the guys that changed the world. Isn't that amazing? English professors and linguistics people changed the world. Oh yeah, they did. You might go, that's a silly thing. No, would be to God, we knew the English language. Would be to God, we studied the Hebrew language and the, and the Greek language so that we could have the word of God in our hands as well. The people of God had left the word of God and gone to worship wealth. Folks, I'm telling you, we can be guilty of that very same thing. Seeking after lives of personal peace and influence. And then you know what God did? You know, you can kill an army, but let me tell you what they couldn't deal with. God sent something that they could not fight. There were no, they couldn't pull out a sword. They sent, God sent the plague. This horrible plague they called the Black Death came from China into Europe as Europe's Christian traders were more interested in tea uh, and opium in China than proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This horrible scourge of God killed one out of every four people in the Christian continent of Europe. Folks, that's a lot of people. If you want to do a little math, you know how many people are on America? Imagine if one out of every four people you knew died. Millions upon millions it would be in in our time. It swept like a storm back. And forth across Europe again and again between 1347 and 1350, wiping out sometimes entire villages of people, every single human being dying. It was beyond horrible. The Black Plague, uh, this sickness spread from the bite of fleas that rode on the backs of rats. And, and in a short incubation period, in only three days, a fever would come, rapid pulse, spells of delirium. Their speech would be lost. They, they, they couldn't think right. Boils would begin to appear on their body the size of eggs. And, and pain would reek through their body as, as the disease would spread into their limb glands. They were watching their loved ones die these disfigured and horrible, painful deaths before their eyes. They would die within three to four days. Some of them, they didn't just linger and fade out, but the pain would be so great, they would just, their hearts would just stop. At the height of this epidemic, mortality ranged between 30% uh, percent and 90%. That means that, you know, in most of the villages, nine out of every 10 people would die when the plague would come to town. That's a lot. Imagine if nine out of 10, every person that lived in Mount Sterling died. How would you feel? Kind of, would it kind of maybe upset the apple cart of your life a little bit? I think it would. And who sent it, guys? You know God sent it. We know he's in charge of this stuff, right? On August the 2nd, 1527, the dreaded plague was on its way to Wittenberg. Now, we would say Wittenberg, Germany, but you know, Germany didn't even exist as a country at that time. And uh, in Wittenberg, of course, we've heard about this many, many times. But with the dread memory of this vile scourge reverberating through the psyche of Europe, they had known... If you knew that a plague came and wiped out one in every four human beings and you heard it was coming to your town, what do you think? 
It'd be worse than just hearing something was coming. You knew it was coming. People had talked about it. They had written songs and poems and remembered the horrors of it. And it was coming again. Terror gripped them as the news of the dread steps of this monster of the day and the night approached their village. And when it came into the city, with just a few days, the news of its ravishes in the outskirts of the villages made their way. Martin Luther worked in Wittenberg. I mean, we know the story of the Great Reformation, but do you understand that God was at work in the world bringing great tumult and disease and pain and difficulty at the same time? You would have thought, you know, what would have been better to have a real peaceful, nice time and introduce it? No, God brings it in the midst of this turmoil. Why? Because you know what happens in, in, in horrible times like that? People start getting perspective. Instead of planning, building their little kingdoms, they're like, you know what? I don't know if we're going to live till next year. I don't know what we're going to do. Let's just abandon it all for Jesus. Let's just get to work. Let's just go spread the gospel. Let's do what we can to, get the, get to, to, to talk about Christ in the world. That's what people do. But we think, well, you know what? We have forever. It'll be fine. We'll, later on, we'll get spiritual. Later on, we'll, we'll pray. Later on, we'll go reach the lost. Later on, we'll do, we'll do it when, when I'm older and when we have more time. It doesn't work like that. It was now approaching 10 years since Luther, who we now know and call the great father of the Reformation, had nailed his 95 thesis. You know, when we did that in our minds, oh, he nailed it on the thing. And a few years later, there were Christians. No, no. He, this was 10 years and they're still killing Christians. They're still killing people like Martin Luther. And he knows it. In fact, not only is he worried about the dread of the disease coming, he's worried about any day getting a knock on his door and they'll haul him out and kill him too. In the midst of all this, what's he doing? He's preaching. In the midst of all this, what's he doing? He's writing books. He's writing books because I might die, but the book might live. And the words of the book that hear about what God did in the world, and the words of the book about what God did in my life will live on when I'm dead. And he said, what I'll do is... You know, he wasn't writing like this, but he was writing like this. I, I do this because I do a little bit of writing too. Not only could he hear the steps of death approaching for the plague, church authorities were calling for the death of those that preached this message that Luther was proclaiming every single day. <coughs> he said that he expected daily to be killed. He had come to understand that the blood of the martyrs is indeed the seed of the church. And what a great privilege it would be to offer our lives for the advancement of the gospel if we are called to it. And you know what? You may think it's crazy that we might be, but folks, we may live in a day. And I hope we live in a day where God brings judgment and revival in our land and sees it change. I'd love to live to see that day. And if that means I die in the middle of it, then, then praise God for that. We belong to him. Amen. Just two weeks after people said the disease was coming, it arrived. On August the 16th, 1527, Luther received the news, though, in the midst of all this that shocked him even worse than the coming of the disease. His heart was broken and it was crushed to the core when he heard that his friend had been taken. A convert priest who had moved to Wittenberg to, to learn from Luther had become his close dear friend. His name was Leonhard Kaiser. He had been taken by authorities and burned alive. I mean, it's horrible when someone you love dies, but burned alive. He had been taken by authorities and told he could not preach this new gospel that the reformers have been preaching. The truth that God saves people by grace and that he does this through faith and not of their works. It was a novel message. You might go, 
What is that? That's the message. If you proclaim to people, you will change their lives. If you explain to them, they don't need to save themselves. That someone already has done that for them. And if they can believe it in their heart and they can understand it and they can confess it with their mouth, they too can be changed by the gospel. If you tell people that, folks, what you're doing is you're speaking life into them. And you might go, well, they don't want to hear it and they don't want to listen. But tell me, let me tell you, they do. The world is starving. The world is dying. The world is waiting for you to speak your words to them. They had told him to stop. And do you think he stopped? I don't think so. He was like Jeremiah. He had a fire set up in his bones and he didn't care. He was sold out for what God did. He was not moved by these threats. He would not recant his belief. Pastor Kaiser earlier in his life had resigned to the post of his church as a priest in the Catholic Church. Here he saw in uh, the life of Martin Luther and in what was happening in the Reformation, he saw what he desired. He wanted to see people love the Word of God and know it and read it. And he saw it happening. And when he saw this happening through Martin Luther, he's like, you know what? I'm just leaving my job. I'm just leaving everything. I'm leaving my family and I'm coming to Wittenberg and I want to be with him and I want to join him and he did. So he joined Dr. Martin Luther face to face, visiting his lectures, burning with zeal. It was said by Luther that, uh, that this man was unwearied in his diligence. He enjoyed uh, his friendship with him. He was inflamed by this man's joyous faith, his love for the pure doctrine. You know, when you're a teacher of the gospel and someone comes around and they love it, you know what it makes you want to do? It makes you want to talk about it more. It makes you want to teach it more. It, it, it's exciting. You know, uh, you, you might go, Mark, you're a little amped up. Yeah, I'm amped up. I'm amped up because there are people going, tell me, show me. I want to do it. And I'm like, you do? Yeah. All right. Here's what happened. And I, 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 it would take me hours and hours to tell you all that transpired. It's exciting. So this man came around. He wanted to hear. He said at the same time, not only was he willing to hear what was being spoken, but day and night he searched the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. He had the Bible out. Folks, young people, they weren't just goofing off and playing silly songs. They were getting out their Bibles and they were saying, where is this in the word of God? Where does it say this? I want to know this myself because dad's not always going to be with me. I want to go to a door and when they say, tell me about it, I want to be able to open my mouth and be able to say, I was thankful as I rode down the road, Ashley, that my girls are in the car and with Emily and their faces are crammed up uh, behind in my ear and, and they're talking about they're wanting to reach the lost and they want to go out and make a difference in the world and they're crying and I'm driving down the road and I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. Two years he studied and wrote with Luther with the, and the deep friendship grew between these men of God. A letter came from his brother's that he needed to go to Bavaria because his father was very, very sick and he may die at any moment. Driven by his love for his father, he left. He hurried home uh, to, and, and God sustained his father to, the, to, uh, to be alive when he got there. And he was able to grasp him by the hand and sit with him and talk with him in the hours before he died. But just two hours after he arrived, his father breathed his last breath and died. Kaiser became dangerously ill himself and could not return back to Luther's side where he wanted to be. He got sick and was stuck in the bed. But even while he was in bed, the people of the area said, oh, that preacher's here. And they took him out of his sick bed and drug him off to jail. 
He was so sick, he could hardly stand and he was, wasn't feeling well, but it didn't bother them. These evil messengers of Satan came and buffeted him. But would he recant? He would not. He would not. And so they took him out and they lit him up and they burned him alive. And, and when Luther learned about this, it was crushing blow. In a letter written on my birthday, October the 22nd, Martin Luther wrote about hearing about the death of his friend, Leonhard Kaiser. He said, pray earnestly that Christ may not forsake me, for I am driven almost mad by the assaults of Satan's angels. Miserable creature that I am. How unlike this lion-hearted man. I preach the gospel with my words, but he is a powerful doer of the word. Oh, that I were counted worthy to be endued, not with double, but with half of the spirit that this man has, that I may overcome Satan like him. This man inspired him. God sends people to us and their, their blazing excitement for Christ is inspirational to us. I love it. I don't want to double up. I just want half of what he has. God be praised that amid such evil, Luther wrote, God has granted us poor, miserable creatures a glorious glimpse of his loving kindness, of his token that he has not forsaken us because he sent us such beautiful men as this man. Pray for me, Luther wrote, that Christ may grant me that I might be like this lion-hearted man. He is not called a king but a Kaiser, for he has overcome him whose power is so great that no one in America can be compared to him. I'm not even sure what that meant, but that's what, that's what Luther wrote. He said he's not only a priest, but he's a bishop. And the Pope has offered up his body as a shock of wheat that is well-pleasing to the Lord as an offering to God. He is rightly named Lionhearted because he has proved himself strong and fearless as a lion. Oh, that this name signified was a scene if people knew it when they had seen him. It was amid the backdrop of all of these things that people began to die all over Wittenberg and they were trying to get Luther to leave, but he wouldn't. Unmoved by the letters from officials and pleas from his friends, Luther and his wife, if you remember her, Katarina von Bora. And I'll tell you why, right, girls, don't let anyone tell you that your job in life it's just to stand, gaze at some man while he does what he does and, and, and you be in awe of it while you bring him his coffee. Katarina von Bora was no such woman. She was a mighty woman of God in her own right. And she was helping these nuns and giving, giving her life to doing this work of God herself. And it was her, her fervency and her work in the ministry that drew these two people together. She was no wallflower. She was a mighty woman of God. I want those. I want women of God. I went to the, there were these things to go to and I show up in the woman in ministry meeting. They're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I got women who I want to see in ministry. That's why I'm here. They're like, oh, okay. They're like, but there aren't any guys here. I'm like, well, if my daughters are here, I can be here. I got women who are going to serve God, who are going to do something. They're not just waiting around for some, someone to show them the way to ministry. They're going to do it. And I pray to God that God gives them godly husbands. But they have a husband in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
Unmoved by letters from all these people, he and his wife, along with a man named Johann Bugenhagen, or Bugenhagen, stayed to minister to the sick. He wasn't about to leave these frightened people in Wittenberg. He wasn't about, he knew God sent this plague. If God wanted to take him, he could take it, but he wasn't leaving them. They would not abandon their new church who needed them now more than ever. Bugenhagen was also a convert of Luther's ministry, made so by reading a little book that he wrote. He wrote this book comparing the church of his day to the Babylonian captivity of Israel. Maybe someone could write a book about that today, comparing the plague that has come, comparing the Muslims that came to the Muslims and the plague that's coming to America if we too do not repent. Not only did Bugenhagen come to faith in Christ's firsthand work of grace and his salvation, but he too came to Wittenberg to become, he becomes Luther's pastor. Luther had to go to church, you know, he's busy doing his work. He needed someone to be his pastor. And this man became that for him. By August the 19th, uh, the, 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 it, it hasn't even hardly been a month uh, since the plague hit the city. There were 18 deaths. The wife of the mayor of the city came and, and, and almost died in Luther's arms as, as she fell. And then she did die uh, soon after she fell into his arms. Luther's own sweet, resilient wife was pregnant. And, and two women that were living in the house, they became sick. They thought it was the plague and they just assumed they were all going to die. Luther's little son Hans refused to eat for three days. A chaplain who was there at the house, his wife was pregnant. She took six. She lost her baby and she died. Bugenhagen and his family then moved into the house with Luther. Kind of like, okay, we've been in the, we've been in the castle. Now we've been in the keep, but now we're going to move in further. And they just kept getting closer to one another. Writing from Amsdorf, Luther spoke about this plague that God had sent. He said, there are battles without, and there are terrors within. And they are very grim. Christ is punishing us. Now he wasn't saying him. He's understanding that this church of Jesus Christ, it's not, it's not them. The church of Jesus Christ is us. We're part of it. We may not like to identify with them, but they're our brothers and they're our sisters and they're wrong and they need help and they need deliverance and we need to help them. It's not them. They're not the them. They're us. God is punishing us, he wrote. It is a comfort that we can confront Satan's fury with the word of God, which we now have. He helped bring it into the German language. It saves the souls, even if one should devour our body. And you know, that sounds poetic. Folks, he, it wasn't poetry. That was, that was what was happening. The plague might devour him. He may be burned alive by the Pope at any minute. Bad things are happening all around. And he goes, if God destroys our body, at least the word will live on. Commend us to the brethren and yourself. Pray for us that we may endure bravely under the hand of the Lord and overcome the power and the cunning of Satan, be it though through our dying or through our living. It is in the midst of these great trials that he turned to God's word, not just to instruct others, but to uphold himself, for he was collapsing under the heavy weight of pain and fear. He turned time and time again to the same psalm over and over again. He would go to Philip Melanchthon when he was feeling discouraged and he wanted to quit. And he would say, will you sing it with me? 
And they would roll out Psalm 46. And, and I don't know the meter in the song that they had, but they would roll it out. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried in the sea, I will not be afraid. And he wasn't just singing them for hyperbole. He was singing them because he was feeling like the very mountains of his life were being cast into the sea all around him. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Oh, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. As he began to read Psalm 46, he began to see himself and his life, and he began to understand what God was going to do through him. God is in the midst of her, he says in verse 5. She shall not be moved. Jesus had said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living God. And Martin Luther knew that the Pope and all of his power, that Rome with all of its power, and even the plague and all of its power could not reach and pluck him out of the hand of God and could not stop the church what God was building. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her and he shall help her early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. But God uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations has he made in the earth? He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. Can you see? The spirit rising within him as he's reading this and praying this and singing it with his brother Philip Melanchthon. You might be tempted to think of the great reformer Martin Luther as merely an intellectual genius, a great orator or a magnanimous salesman who started a movement. But the facts that I'm laying before you should remind you that he was a pastor, that he was a shepherd who cared for his sheep, that he was a husband, and that he was, of course, a man. That's all God calls are just people, not great people, but people that believe in a great God. He was a man of sorrow and stress and difficulties beyond our imagination. It should remind and inspire us of what men we could be, what women of faith we could aspire to be when we read these stories. Oh, that men would give their lives to the, the, the good pursuits rather than playing games and fiddling in the way their life with foolishness and insanity that, that brings nothing into their lives whatsoever. And they would understand that we are at war right now with the devil. Oh, that we would grow up. I'm not saying we can't enjoy ourselves. You know that the Robinettes party and we have fun and we like to enjoy each other. But I pray that it is in the context of the feast after the battle. That it is the feast preparing for the next battle. This man was a mountain, but he was a mountain of faith in his great God. He looked into the hills as David knew it. Was, his hill was God from whence would come his help. This is why we look to Luther 500 years later, why he sang to God, the God that had no beginning. From these great contradictions, these great contractions of the 16th century was birthed an anthem from his heart. This great man that we do well to sing with when we sing this thing, this song. You guys know the song, right? The song he wrote that he wrote from Psalm 46. We're singing it today. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills 
prevailing. Don't those words mean a little bit more knowing that this is when he wrote it? He wrote it right in this time that I'm talking about as the plague is coming and they're burning his friend alive. The song would spread as far and penetrate as deep as the plague that had brought it and become the battle cry of Protestants everywhere. Often called the true national anthem and the hymn of Germany, the hymn spread rapidly and was sung on the battlefield at Leipzig in 1631 during the Thirty Years' War. It was sung at Augsburg when the Catholics gathered to condemn the reformers and in all the churches of Saxony against the protest of the priest. It was sung in the streets and so heard and it was sung by the poor Protestant immigrants who were on their way into exile and by the death of martyrdom. No hymn is identified with the Protestant Reformation more than Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. This song was one of the many that Luther left uh, of original congregational songs that were inspired from the Psalms and this one from Psalm 46 in particular. These songs that are said define the Lutheran confession and its tradition and they became the ecumenical influence among its thinkers and shapers. We not only want, want good songs, we want songs with powerful theology. That's why I loved the songs that Luke wrote for our church years ago. They weren't just anthems that rhymed or sentimental songs. They were talk about the sovereignty and the power of God, about the beauty of being abandoned by everyone, but being so happy because we haven't been abandoned by Christ. The Reformation of the 16th century can be understood in various ways, but in essence, it was a biblical revolution. It was at the heart of this biblical revolution were the Psalms themselves. We know a lot about Luther, but what many of us do not know is how God used the book of Psalms to reshape Luther's way of thinking and prepared him for the work that he would do. After he had received his doctorate degree in 1512, way before he, uh, you know, did a lot of the things that you know about his first lectures on the Bible on the Latin text of the Psalter from the book of Psalms. At the time, Luther did not know Hebrew, but he taught himself to read the biblical tongue with the help of Johann Ruchlin's On the Rudiments of Hebrew. The Hebrew Bible had found its way into print decades before Erasmus published the first Greek New Testament in 1516. Luther's translation of the Tanaka from Hebrew into the High German would not be completed, though, until 1534. But a decade earlier, he had already brought out his Der Psalter Deutsch, which, of course, means the Psalter in German, his first published edition. Before he wrote the great things that he wrote that we know about, he's writing, he's like, you've got to read the Psalms. You've got to sing the Psalms. They ignited him. Luther once said that the Psalms are not words to be read, but they are words to be lived. Every Christian should take the Psalms to heart, memorize them, ponder their meanings. And in short, if you see the Holy Christian Church pictured in living color and form in a small portrait, pick it up. It's called the Psalter. That's what Luther said about them. Here we hear Luther echoing a church father that he admired and studied, whose name was Athanasius. In the fourth century, Athanasius wrote a letter to um, Marcellinius, who was likely a deacon in the church of Alexandria. During a long illness, Marcellinius had turned to the study of the Bible and was especially drawn to the book of Psalms, striving, quote here, to comprehend the meaning contained in each one. Athanasius uh, 
commends this desire and he claims that the Psalms are an entire Bible in miniature, the perfect image for the soul's course of life. My power cord was not with us today. And so we have no more, but that's all right. I think we're, I think we're at it. You, you, you know what happens here, right? So Luther pens the psalm, pens these songs. They, see, they sing them from their hearts. The Reformation is launched through this love of the Psalms. And as you go through each of these great reformers, we even go to Calvin. And you know what Calvin does? Calvin also takes and he writes the Psalms. He turns, he puts music to the Psalms. He wants to sing the Psalms. Does this sound familiar to something that's going on at Foundation Church? We sing the Psalms. We have a call to worship from the Psalms. I'm preaching through the Psalms. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I'm telling you, Reformation is coming to America, and I believe it's coming through Foundation Church. I think it's coming through the young people that are sitting on this pew, some of whom are stinkers today, some of whom are self-centered, who are thinking of themselves, who are more worried about what boyfriend or girlfriend or who's going to be buddies with who or does anybody like me. These kids are going to grow up. They're going to get the fire of God birthed into their soul, and they're going to turn into mighty women and men of God who do good things. And you might go, are you just speaking to inspire? Well, call it what you want. I'm telling you that I believe it. I believe that in 20 years we will look back and we will say that a revolution began at Foundation Church when we began to look to the Word of God, when we began to sing it, when we began to pray it, when we began to believe it, and when we turned away from all the things. See, it's not just turning off your cable television. It's not just not going and watching superheroes at the movie theater. What it's saying is I'm going to turn to the living God. I'm going to follow after him. I'm going to battle the devil. And all along the way, let's have a little fun. On the way, we can enjoy ourselves. We're not afraid of the world. We're here to conquer it. We're here to step on the neck of the devil. And we're here to cast him out and bring him down. And I'm telling you, you might say, how can it happen? I'll tell you, it's going to happen through these little, these little boys on the front row, through these little girls and boys that are sitting in these pews, and through you, through the parties that you have at your house, Jonathan and Ashley. And you say, oh, the church is not like it was. I remember those days when, when people used to come over and hang out all night. Well, open your house and start a fire in your yard and bring people over and spend your money making soup and making food and inviting the young people over. I'm trying my best to do what I'm trying to do, but there are some things I can't do. And it might be better if you did them. Amen? Come on, honeymooners. Open up the house and have all the kids over. You got a yard so big, they could run across the bridge 15 times. I don't know. Let them swim through your creek. I mean, get into it. Come on, Goldsmiths. We're out there, you know, having fun out on the farm and and enjoying that and camping out there and seeing all God's creation. We need to be opening up our homes. We need to be bringing these young people in. We need to say, you want to study the word of God? You guys come over to my house tonight. We're going to break out the piano. Sarah's going to get on the piano and play a few songs. And and we're going to sing. And Matt's going to grab his guitar. And we're going to sing. And we're going to write songs. And we're going to change the world together. That's what I believe is happening right now at Foundation Church. 
That's what I believe the future of it. We're not going to, you know, degrade into the foolishness of, of self-examination and, and who is better than who and, and all of the piddly uh, nonsense that would go away if God would just send us a plague and kill half the people of our neighborhood. Do we really need that? Do we really need the Muslims to blow up Mount Sterling? And, uh, and do we really need a disease to come? Do you know that in the 1920s when the church would not repent of its sins, then God sent a, a flu that killed uh, millions. How many? Come on, I need a historian. Was it like 20 million people that were killed and they were all young people? Yeah, the influenza. You can read about it. Nathaniel was telling me I, we needed to include it in the history book. Uh, but it happened and I don't remember the exact dates of it, but millions of young people died that were between the ages of 18 and 25. Do we really need that to inspire us? You know, that came and went, but a revival didn't follow it. You know, we missed it. Um, you know, remember these diseases? Remember a little while back we were afraid they were coming here? Come on. Remember it? <coughs> Name one of them. You're already forgetting it. You don't even want to think about it. But I remember when it was coming, we were scared. Ebola. What if Ebola shows up and this time we don't laugh at it and kick it out of our country? What are you going to do then? You're going to get serious about the things of God? I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to explain to you. God is not going to have the church of Jesus Christ sit around and fall into nothingness. He's not going to allow us to just give us the treasures of heaven and give us the power of God and to sit around, you know, and be goofy. That's not what we were called to do. My daughters are telling me what they want to do in the car. My sons weren't in the car. They were in a different car. I'm ready to go and knock on a few doors. I'm ready to go talk to a few people. I'm ready to bring a few stinky people into my house. I'm ready to go in a few stinky places. I've done it before. I can do it again. How many people want to go with me? How many people want to go find people who don't know Christ, who don't even understand what it's like to, to see a mom a love her children or a father be a leader in his home? How many people want to do that? How many people? I think you're ready. I think, I think this uh, time of we're busy and we got little kids and we can't do anything, I think it's over. I think it's time that this building, which is already seeming not, not big enough, I, 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 there's time when we ought to fill every pew in it before we start asking God to give us another one. When, there's, when every chair we have out in that garage is all up on here and all over here and in that room and we bust out those windows and people are, when that comes, I think God might send us another building if we want one. He gave us this one, did he not? We can worry about it. We can think about it. We can plan for it. But I'm telling you what, God will have his holy will. He's going to work through the children here. And I want my kids to be in the middle of it. I want your kids to be in the middle of it. We're all a bunch of sinners. We're all weak. We all don't know exactly what we're doing. But I'll tell you, we know a God who does. Amen. Amen. I'm a, can, can you tell I'm a little cranked up? Folks, this isn't just, a, this just isn't a, another, wow, Mark really preached today. Let this be a start for us. Let this be one where we go, all right, this is going to be, this is the beginning of something. You may not know it, but it is the beginning. You can get in it or, or you, can, you can be left behind going, what's going on? Our church really changed. There's a lot of weirdos around our church now. I think I, I, think I saw them, you know, coming out of Darby Tavern uh, on ladies night the other night and Mark asked him to be a praise singer. I, I don't know if this is right. She was really good at karaoke at ladies night. So I just, you know, me and the boys were down there. You know, just kidding. Just kidding. 
I don't know where God will take us or what he, do, what he will do. But God can use us. Right? What did Jesus, you remember when he said, he said, go out in the highways and byways and compel them to come that my house might be full. Folks, we serve a banquet of the word of God every week here. And there's just food left on the table because there's people out there who aren't in here eating it up. Can't we drag them in, pull them in, push them in? Come on, Steve, you can get a few. Folks, we're not bringing anybody. One person would be more than what we've been doing lately, right? Let's go get them. And you know what? We're not going to turn into evangelism servants every week and, and whatever. But we'll go. You find someone that wants to hear the word of God. I'll teach till I can't teach anymore. I'll go and I'll stay up late. I'll burn myself out. If I never finish any of my book ideas ever, who cares? God is going to have his holy will. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we're inspired by what we saw happen in the lives of the reformers. We are inspired by their love for the Psalms and the power that you gave them through them. Lord, speak your word and create a whole new world. Let our mouths be where those sounds come from. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. May we speak words of faith. As Paul asked in Romans, how can they hear except a preacher? Preach. And how shall the preacher preach unless he be sent? In the name of Jesus, I pray right now that we would send forth every child of God that is here to go forth into the world and speak the word of God. To not be afraid of what might be coming to them as a result of it. To be like brave like Luther who thought they may kill him every day but he kept preaching. Some of us may end up being like Leonhard. And even from our deathbed they drag us off and they end our lives. But oh God may those lives be our inspiration. Lord, we don't know what the future holds in the work that we're doing in Myanmar or in the church down the road at the Chin Church. Maybe we could go there and maybe God could help us set a fire in there in these Chin people who, are, uh, who came to America so that they could worship Jesus. We could help them get their children out of the public schools. We could help them, Lord, disciple their children. Oh God, we don't know what you're going to do through us, but Lord, you can have us. If it's to start a school or to who knows to do what, we don't know, God. We want to be open to lead us, guide us, fill us with your spirit, direct us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.